Hi, this is Connie from Huntington Beach, California, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. So let's get started. And as always, I would like to take the time to thank everyone for continuing to support California Dreaming on social media by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as for those who have left nice reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever platforms you listen to the show on. By spreading the word and recommending California Dreaming in listening groups, and of course for supporting us on Patreon as well. There are currently more than 20 exclusive bonuses on Patreon, and for as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to all those episodes too. This week, I'd like to thank Donna, Adriana, AJ, Amanda R, Antonia L, Vanessa I, Carrie M, and Nika P for joining Patreon. And I'd also like to thank M.A., V, Eloise S., and Cynthia D. for raising up their pledges. If you would like to make a one-time donation to help support, you can do so through PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. And before we get into today's story, I must provide you with this warning. This episode contains numerous acts involving sexual abuse of young children, mass murder, the violent murder of very young children between the ages of 1 through 17, and suicide. Some of the content may be very disturbing, and this episode may be difficult and triggering to listen to. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Also, this episode has been recommended by a number of listeners. I can't remember who all reached out to me about this, but if you remember talking to me about this case, please message me and refresh my memory. I've put it off for quite some time, mainly for the warnings that I've listed above. This is a hard one to talk about, and it's a lot to unload. I next want to thank you for your patience while I took a couple of weeks off to kind of decompress from all the negativity that swirled around the previous three episodes, the two-part bonus series entitled The Tale of the Stopwatch Gang and episode 93, The Tale of the Fugitive. I'll start by saying that I received and heard all the criticism that those who were offended or put off by what I had to say and who took the time to air your grievances. In regards to The Fugitive, 
the story of Susan Lefevre, the woman who escaped from prison and went on to marry and have children all under a false identity and hid the truth of who she really was from her husband and kids for many, many years. Some were quick to point out that I was overly judgmental in my assessment of Susan's actions in terms of the years of deceit and how she wasn't really taking into consideration how her family may come to feel should they know that their wife and mother wasn't who she said she was all those years. First, I have to point out that I believe I stated at least once and maybe even more times that this was only my opinion. Nothing that I ever say is ever chiseled in stone. Everything is always up for discussion. And the fact is, I don't know the family and neither do any of you listening. Susan could have been like, surprise, I'm a fugitive and the last 30 years has been one big lie. And her kids could have fallen over and died from laughter like they just fell for the biggest prank ever and thought it was hilarious. Who knows? Second, my opinion comes from how I would feel. And a lot of what I have to say here comes from how I feel. I share with you every week how these stories affect me. I'll tell you if I don't know what to think. And we're obviously all free to disagree. It's because if you've been with me as we make our way through these stories every week, then you know me and you know where I'm coming from. And we feel safe in sharing how we feel. And that is what our discussion page is for, to hash it out. I wouldn't jump on social media and tear down your opinions because I think I'm right. I would come and talk to you, interested in how we could see the same thing so differently. I'd hear you out, and I'd even come on here and share your opinions and how you may have possibly impacted how I look at things. But when it comes to the stories I tell on the show, I can only look at it from my own lens as I'm telling it which is why many listeners will hear a story multiple times from various hosts to get an array of perspectives. If I put myself in the place of the family, if my spouse had done to my children and me what Susan had done, how would that make me feel? And the genuine answer is I would be shocked and I'd be surprised and I'd be hurt. But that's just me. I got a lot of who cares and so what reactions, and I'm fairly certain if you scroll back through the hundreds of hours of content that I've produced over the last two years, there are two things that I would never say about a victim, no matter how minor the indiscretion, and that's so what and who cares. If your husband or wife lied to you for 30 years and your reaction would be so what, who cares, that's great. I didn't start a true crime podcast to end a story with so what, who cares, but to tell a story and share my thoughts. And as for the tale of the stopwatch gang and my take on Canada's policies when it comes to crime, punishment and rehabilitation, some listeners took offense to some of the jokes I made about the day passes and whatnot. As far as that's concerned, I was kidding around and most knew and understood that. Many agreed that there are some things about the rehabilitation program that are questionable, but that can probably be said for many, if not all countries. It was not my intentions to bash Canada or the way that they handle things. Nothing I said was meant to be any sort of harsh criticism towards the country. 
I wouldn't do that, considering it's not even my country to be bashing. So if anyone took it that way, it certainly wasn't my intentions. So with that out of the way, I've decided that the best thing to do is to just go back to what the show is intended to be about. The darkest crimes that have ever taken place here in the golden state of California. And that's exactly where we're going today in this 94th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the monster of Fresno. Today, we're going to talk about a man named Marcus Wesson. Some of you may have heard of him. Some may not. He was born in the state of Kansas on August 22, 1946, and he was the oldest of four children born to Benjamin and Carrie Wesson. The Wessons raised their children under the teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, with Mom, Carrie, having been described as a religious fanatic. Seventh-day Adventists are a branch of Christianity in which there is a strong focus on the second coming of Jesus Christ, which is not uncommon for other Christian-based religions as well. Marcus Wesson, along with his siblings, were brought up under the relentless threat of religious chastisement when it came to acting up or misbehaving. They were raised to love Jesus Christ, but at the same time, they lived in constant fear of their parents, particularly their father, Benjamin. He has been described as an alcoholic and extremely abusive, especially towards the children. And Marcus Wesson, as a young boy, was an incredibly obedient and respectful child. He addressed his parents as sir and ma'am, and no matter what he may have thought regarding his mother and father, he was conditioned to obey. Even if he thought they were wrong, it didn't matter. If he didn't, then he was going to hell. The Wesson parents took their religious beliefs to another level when it came to giving their children lessons from the scriptures. And it is not unlike those who are devout Christians who want to study and learn lessons from the Bible and teach about those things at home or in Bible study sessions. But what the Wessons were doing was using the Bible and its scriptures and applying their lessons in such a way that it instilled a deep fear in their children. Fears of religious punishment such as spending an eternity in hell. Instead of using the lessons to teach and nurture, the scriptures of the Bible were being used as weapons of intimidation against their four children, as well as a means of manipulating them, beginning from very early on in their lives. When Wesson was young, his parents separated, and sometime afterwards, Mom Carrie relocated to California along with her four children. And when Marcus Wesson was 17, he ended up dropping out of high school in the middle of his junior year. He enlisted in the United States Army. He became a trained medic and was stationed in Europe. And he did well during his time in the service. He was a paramedic. He drove an ambulance. He received an honorable discharge. And when he was done, he returned to California. During Wesson's time in the Army and overseas, it had given him a chance to take stock of his life, figure out what direction he was going to go next, and how his devout religious beliefs would play into all that. By the time he was discharged and back in California, he was only 22 years old. He settled down in San Jose and got a job working in a bank. 
but it didn't take long for him to realize that this was not something he wanted to be a part of. He found the clientele to be consumed with a culture of materialism, and having to be surrounded by bank customers he saw as having nothing better to do but blow all their money, it bothered him. Working in a bank, he got a first-hand look at the way people indulged and overspent. Even though it was really none of his concern, he just didn't care to be around it. And while Wesson was in the midst of wanting to figure a way out of the banking business, he met a woman named Rosemary Solorio. She too lived in San Jose. And when they met, Rosemary was married with children, and she was 13 years older than Wesson. It wasn't long before Rosemary and her husband would separate, and in short order, Wesson moved into her home with her kids. He quickly honed in on the fact that Rosemary had a history of rocky relationships. She had several children from two different prior relationships, and from what I read, her children were not the most well-behaved kids. They were described as unruly, and Rosemary was struggling with getting a grip on the household. In her conversations with Wesson, Rosemary related how difficult things were, how she just couldn't get it together. And apparently, Wesson quickly latched onto this, wanting to help her in her plight, assist her with getting her kids on track. And when he moved in, it appeared as though he was able to help Rosemary regain control over the household. He gave her children guidance and structure. At least that's what appeared to be happening, and Rosemary was grateful for Wesson stepping in to help. In reality... Marcus Wesson had met Rosemary when she was in a very weakened and vulnerable place in her life. She was having marital discord. She was having difficulties disciplining her children when suddenly Wesson comes along with promises to fix all of it. And he's young. He's fresh out of the army. I mean, she fell for him quickly. By 1971, Wesson and Rosemary had a child together, a son. But despite that, even from the beginning, things between the couple had not gone exactly the way either one of them had expected. Yes, they had a child together, but Wesson appeared to be more interested in one of Rosemary's daughters, Elizabeth. Even just months into their relationship, it was evident that Wesson was gravitating towards her, and at the time she was only nine years old also raised to be devoutly religious, taught to stay on the path that God had intended for her and to never stray from that. Eventually, the kids were removed from public school in order to be homeschooled, strictly from lessons taken from the Bible. And this was the manner in which Wesson was able to become so integrated into these children's lives. Again, through manipulation and instilling fear of religious punishments. Eventually, sometime in 1974, Wesson told Rosemary that the Lord had been speaking to him ever since they met, and that God had a plan for them, and it's a plan they needed to follow. Using many of the same tactics his mother and father used on him, he told Rosemary that they were approaching a catastrophic time, that the end was coming closer with each passing day, and they must dedicate all of their lives to Jesus Christ 
and to do this they must follow every one of his commands. But what he was really doing was using the persuasive powers of God for those who are devout and feel it's pertinent to follow his word to get Rosemary to do what he wanted her to do. He told her he was a prophet and God was speaking directly to him. He told her that God wants him to do some very specific things and it involves starting over with a whole new life. The first thing Wesson told Rosemary they needed to do was to go completely dark, cut off ties and go off the grid. The purpose of this was to begin what he called a pure family. And God told him that in order for this to happen, that God has chosen Elizabeth to be his wife. And because that is the word of God, it was her duty. And this is the means by which they have been told having a pure family is possible. Now, just as there are plenty of things that I've told you over the last couple of years that I'm not, I am also not a religious scholar. I can only share with you what I find in my research. And from what I can find, because Wesson, if he had continued to be in a committed relationship with Rosemary, that would make nine-year-old Elizabeth his stepdaughter. And there is no religion or denomination that would promote or condone the act of having children with your own children as a means of growing your family. Even though Elizabeth is not Wesson's biological daughter, she was only nine years old at the time Weston started suggesting that she become his wife. And there is no traditional religious groups out there that would deem this acceptable. And for whatever reasons that Mary had, she didn't protest Weston's plan. I can't really say why she would not have objected, but I would guess the simple answer is that she was either abused or threatened or felt threatened or manipulated and complied with Wesson's wishes out of fear, and not just fear of him, but also fear of God's wrath. Otherwise, I find it difficult to believe she fully supported the proposed arrangement, but I can't know for sure. I don't think she was okay with it, and I do think she was afraid to speak up, though it has also been said that her support for Wesson marrying her young daughter was because the household he was running was more like a cult than anything else, and Rosemary felt obligated to do what she needed to do to keep the household intact. So over the course of the next five years, Wesson and Rosemary, the son that they had together, Elizabeth along with her other three children, they all lived quietly and inconspicuously. At the same time, all obeying Wesson's rules and demands, which, according to him, are all centered around his interpretation of the Bible and his religious ways. The sexual abuse of Elizabeth began at the age of 12 following her first menstrual cycle. When she turned 15, Wesson and Elizabeth became legally married. And at that time, she was five months pregnant. Shortly after the official wedding, Elizabeth gave birth to her first child. From the time Elizabeth was 14 to the time she was 26, she gave birth a total of 11 times, a rate of almost one child per year. Eventually, Weston began writing his own version of a quote-unquote Bible. 
He devoted countless hours compiling this book that contained his own religious principles. In it, he likened Jesus as being a vampire, and that being the case, the way for them to attain immortality was to drink blood, that vampires achieved their power from blood, and that is where he would become powerful as well. These are the types of ideas Wesson was pushing on his family. With the manner in which he kept them isolated, what all this boiled down to was one thing. Whatever it was Marcus Wesson was telling these children, that was all they knew. Wesson had an astonishing ability to maintain control over his wife and children. His name has been equated to the likes of David Koresh, Jim Jones, and Charles Manson. Some would even say he is the embodiment of all of them in one. He told his children this, If you have seen God, then you have seen me. That was basically it. He told them he was God, and that's what they grew up believing. And of them, Wesson demanded complete and absolute obedience. And to make sure they obeyed, Wesson used severe physical abuse as punishments. They received beatings for infractions, such as sneaking food, and those would last for upwards of 20 minutes at a time. And it wasn't only a one-time thing. The children would be made to receive beatings for a prescribed period of time, sometimes 30 days, sometimes even more. When the child punished would wake up in the morning, there would be a sustained beating of at least 20 hits, and then another beating before bed. And this would go on for a minimum of 30 days in a row. Wesson would subject his children to hours upon hours of prayer sessions and Bible studies. And the children, as I said, they really didn't have an idea that this wasn't normal. They were born into this life. They knew nothing of the outside world around them, that this was not the typical family structure. As for Elizabeth, it was her belief that the Lord chose her as his wife, and not really knowing any better, she enjoyed the positive attention that she would receive from Wesson, unlike everyone else in the family. So, with this family having been manipulated into being controlled by Wesson, with his own version of the Bible to teach them his beliefs, with all of them believing that the end of the world was on the horizon, he continued to prepare his family for that day. Not if it arrived, but when it arrived. He told the children that the devil would appear at their door, donning a blue uniform and a gold badge pinned to it. Of course, what he's describing to them was the police. He anticipated that someday police would come knocking on the door. And when that time came, his kids had been conditioned to believe that that was the arrival of the devil, and that signaled the apocalyptic end. That would be the end of days, and they would need to be ready. But while they awaited the devil in the blue uniform, he kept his children under strict watch, confined to their home. Along with the homeschooling, Wesson also didn't stay in one place for extended periods of time. He moved around to various locations along the northern coast of California, he even had his family living on an old sailboat anchored in Tomales Bay, south of San Francisco. 
Sometimes Wesson would leave the boat for several months at a time, keeping them locked below deck so people couldn't see them or wonder why they weren't in school, or possibly even report them to authorities. Wesson also maintained another secret hideaway, a couple hours south of Tomales Bay, located high in the Santa Cruz Mountains. The family had erected a huge army tent, and they mostly lived there for the better part of 12 years. And they lived in absolute filth at this camp. But it was yet another way for Wesson to keep everyone, neighbors, concerned members of the community, social workers, and of course, the devils with the blue suits and badges, from discovering Wesson's captives. Because that's what they essentially were, Wesson's prisoners. They were trapped with no way of getting out, and really, nowhere else to go. And they didn't even realize it. At some point, one of Elizabeth's younger sisters would leave her own seven children with her and Wesson to care for because she was unable to do so. And Wesson did not allow Elizabeth to have a hand in raising any of the children. Now, dreamers, it's going to be kind of confusing to keep track of how many of the children were Wesson's, how many were his nieces and nephews, and eventually how many were his actual own grandchildren that he would have with his own children. But I do know that one child died in infancy, and the final tally appears to be 18 of the children were Wesson's biological children that he had with seven women including five of his own daughters having become pregnant by Wesson himself. And Wesson never worked. He got money and food assistance from the government. Eventually, as his children started getting older, he would send them out to work and they would be made to turn their paychecks over to him. And there had even come a time in 1989 when Wesson was charged and convicted of welfare fraud and perjury as a result of this. But I will get into more details of all that stuff a little bit later. Wesson had different teaching methods when it came to the boys as opposed to the girls. The lessons the boys were given involved compulsory beatings with whips and sticks. The lessons the girls received, he coupled those with what Wesson called quote-unquote loving Around the age of seven, Wesson would begin sexually assaulting them, starting with inappropriate touching. The girls generally had the notion that there was something wrong with what he was doing, but they really didn't know any differently. Their mother was unable to help her children or to stop Wesson from sexually abusing her girls, as she had been subjected to the same abuse since she was eight years old. She was virtually powerless in the relationship, even though she was considered to be the matriarch. Everyone in the household had been controlled and manipulated with the use of extreme fear, even if it was to their own detriment, as it completely wiped out any concern that Wesson's wife or any of his children would have otherwise had for their own personal safety or well-being. They were too afraid to even dare stand up for themselves, even though each of them, in their own minds, were having an inkling that something was not right. The fear had run so deep that as the children got older, 
and reached the age that they would be able to go out and look for employment. When they did work, they would do so and come home, and all of their earnings would be turned over to Wesson. Because like I said, he himself never worked. He milked the welfare system. And with every additional kid, that meant more and more public assistance. And none of them, despite being out in the world and in the workforce, ever said anything to anyone. At any point, any one of them could have contacted police or said something to a co-worker or to a boss, and Weston's sick little world would have come crashing down. But none of them did. Because that's how far Wesson's reach was. How strong his hold was over the lives of his children. They were too afraid to speak up. But not everybody saw this disturbing side of Marcus Wesson. There are some that knew him that could never imagine he was this maniacal sexual abuser. Those who knew him when he was young said he was a typical kid growing up. He was a clean-cut teen, and he always wore nice suits. He went into the army and served his country as a medic during the Vietnam War. And once he was back, those who knew him then described him as kind of a nomad, as he preferred living on the land or on water or on wheels. But he didn't care to always stay in one place. They knew him to have married a young girl when he was 27, that he never really held down a steady job, and he was reluctant to rely on government assistance, so they thought. But he always seemed to have the means to buy a variety of vehicles, including boats, and he had a bus and several other types of vehicles. Though I was under the impression from my research that Marcus Weston wasn't owning anything that was considered to be top of the line by any stretch of the imagination. And many things about Wesson seem like a bevy of contradictions and inconsistencies. Sometimes he told people that he used to be a corporate executive. He would tell others that he was an unemployed banker and still others that he was a junk dealer. Not quite sure what he meant by junk dealer, but I kind of pictured him having a place like Fred Sanford on the TV show Sanford and Sons. Remember, I told you that he had erected an army tent in the Santa Cruz Mountains, but in order for everyone to be comfortable, he installed carpet in it. His kids recalled that they always had money, yet he would send them out looking for cans and bottles for recycling and foraging for food behind restaurants and store dumpsters. Some of Wesson's family members had once described him as a devout family man, dedicated to taking care of his children, setting aside every Friday night as a movie and ice cream night. He carefully invested all the money that they brought in, and whether it be from government assistance or from his children's jobs. One of his daughters had once said that they had a good life. It had been like an adventure, living on buses and boats and camping. They traveled, they were always at the beaches, and Wesson loved to barbecue. One daughter... Kiani said her childhood was idyllic as well. Their weekends were spent at the beaches of Monterey and Santa Cruz. They would take trips to Fresno or north into Washington State. And as they drove, Russin would always have mixtapes with their favorite songs from the 80s. From their father, they learned how to fish. 
He taught them all how to swim. He built skateboards for them. They'd camp out at various parks, and days were spent bike riding or skateboarding or playing in nearby bodies of water. Wesson showed his children how to create things with their hands. He fostered their ingenuity and creativity so they would never have to rely on needing money for the things that they wanted. They built models that they brought along with them during their road trips. They painted and they learned woodworking. Even Elizabeth, his much younger wife at the time, described Wesson as a creative man, good with his hands and making things. He had a vivid imagination, and on top of that, he was a loving, devoted father, and his children were the most important things in the world to him. None of the children attended school. They learned through reading books and studied math with flashcards. The older children were tasked with being the educators of the younger children. Wesson developed his lesson plans, he gave them all homework, and he would grade their papers. And when it came to the holidays, the family celebrated the 12 days leading up to Christmas with a different theme for each day, along with a specific dish to go along with the theme. They had gingerbread day, spaghetti day, or lobster day. His daughter, Kiani Wesson, said in an article in religionnewsblog.com, that those were the best times of their lives. It was fun. Yet somehow, this is the same man who took the Holy Bible and warped its words to fit his own perverse desires. A man who had children with his own daughters and nieces, who would feed them food pulled out of dumpsters while he enjoyed fresh hamburgers, french fries, and an assortment of junk food. And if anyone dipped into his stash of food, they'd receive a severe beating. There doesn't seem to be a place where any of who Marcus Wesson was and is that makes any kind of sense. But most people who knew him really don't know what to say, if they're willing to talk at all. A cousin of Wesson's who lived with him and his parents sometime in the 60s insisted, the Marcus Wesson we are describing here today is not the person he knew him to be. As a young man, he was amicable and friendly. Wesson's mom and his sisters have all but refused to speak to anyone about him. Classmates all described him as a clean-cut kid who preferred wearing slacks and a jacket as opposed to the jeans and t-shirts all the other kids wore. When friends would come to his house, the one thing that stood out about Wesson was his love for model trains. Nobody ever recalled him being anything but friendly, never one to bully or pick a fight, just a nice kid. He earned decent grades, he sang in the school choir, and one of his favorite things to do was watch the trains as they passed through their town. Not one single person who knew him had a bad thing to say about him. Marcus Wesson was a good friend and a good person. As I mentioned earlier, Wesson did not graduate from high school. He had fallen short in the number of credits that he needed to graduate, so he did what lots of other young men were doing, enlisting in the military. Most figured they were going to get drafted anyway. From there, he was sent to Texas for basic training, where he received medical training. After that, he was stationed in Europe with the 695th Medical Ambulance Company, 
from November 1966 to February of 1968. He was sent back to the United States in June of 1968, and then he spent the next four years in the inactive reserves. That cousin who had lived with the Wesson family previously had also come to San Jose to live with him again until he was drafted in 1970. And during that time, he described Wesson as someone who rarely left the house. He wasn't interested in going out. He wasn't a drinker or a drug user. It was shortly after that when Wesson met Rosemary and her children. And neighbors of theirs at the time had nothing but nice things to say about Wesson as well. Described as neighborly and kind, they knew him to spend a great deal of time with Rosemary's kids. He was always spending time with them, and they saw that as him being a devoted family man. It was in 1971 when Rosemary and Wesson had a son, and then in 1974, Elizabeth and Wesson had their first child. Rosemary was known to have shared the news of Elizabeth's pregnancy with one neighbor, who was somewhat put off by the age difference, thinking Marcus was way too old to be involved in a sexual relationship with the teenager. What could be gleaned from county records is that Wesson had applied for government assistance benefits in several counties, including Santa Clara and Santa Cruz counties, at which time he listed his place of residence as being on a bus. At other various times, he reported that he was living on a boat, and in that tent in Santa Cruz. He even listed bare land on his paperwork. In 1981, it was revealed that he took out a substantial loan and built a home in Santa Cruz where his family resided for about three years. But the majority of the time, Marcus listed that he was unemployed and homeless. But no matter where the family landed, they continued to stay devoutly religious and continued to attend Seventh-day Adventist events throughout the years. In 1988, a Stanford University student named Steve Sobrato, who was working as a lifeguard at Santa Cruz Beach, befriended the Wesson family. Wesson, who had been renting a boat slip in the harbor since 1984, approached Steve. For nothing really specific, they just struck up a conversation. At that time, Steve said Wesson appeared to be kind of intimidating, and I don't know what exactly Wesson looked like at the time, but if you happen to take a look at him in recent years, you can get an idea of what Steve was talking about. But to Steve, Wesson was, like many others have said, quite affable and charming. He told Steve that he walked away from his job in corporate America so he would be able to focus on his family, that he homeschooled them, and desired to raise them with a Christian upbringing. And as far as Steve could see, all of Wesson's kids, who at the time ranged in age from infants to teens, all of them were very polite kids. They seemed bright, but they were pretty quiet. There were times that Steve would stay on Wesson's boat when they weren't there, but by the morning he would have to bail water out of the leaky vessel. Wesson often had Steve over for dinner, but once, as the kids were eating some burgers from McDonald's, he offered one to him, but told him that he did get them out of the dumpster because every 30 minutes, they tossed out the burgers that did not sell. Wesson had several vehicles. He had a trailer parked someplace in the mountains. He had another boat that he kept in Monterey County. He had a sailboat in Marin County, 
and that would ultimately lead to some legal problems for Wesson. In 1986, he purchased the 26-foot boat and told the seller that he enjoyed sailing and intended to make changes to accommodate his family that consisted of nine children at the time. Using money orders and traveler's checks, Wesson paid the seller $14,000 and transferred ownership to himself. But soon, the Santa Cruz tax assessor was coming around at the behest of the welfare department. Because if you're on welfare, you're not exactly supposed to be owning $14,000 boats. Wesson tried contacting the county using an alias to explain that the boat was owned by somebody else. He tried to tell his caseworker that he needed the boat there so he would be able to use the restroom and the shower facilities at the marina at which the boat was moored. The harbor master really didn't want the Wesson family using their facilities anymore, and he didn't exactly believe it was possible for all those kids, along with Wesson and his wife, that they were able to all sleep on that boat. It could not accommodate them all. Eventually, regulations were passed that limited the number of people who would be allowed to live on boats in their harbor. This led to the 1989 criminal charges being filed against Wesson for perjury and welfare fraud. Wesson was the type of man who sought out every legal loophole that he could find and work to exploit that, especially if it was under the guise of it all being for the welfare and betterment of his family. Charges were slapped on him anyway, as they saw the boat as excessive property, and they calculated that Wesson had been overpaid more than $20,000 in money and food benefits. Though Wesson would insist that it all went to support his family and to keep them sheltered and fed. He was assigned a public defender, but Wesson would not be satisfied with that either, as he fancied himself an attorney on top of being a god, so he chose to defend himself. By this time, Wesson had been growing out dreadlocks, which were really thick, and at the time, they were about shoulder length. He was a large man, and his appearance could be kind of surprising and somewhat intimidating, like had been described earlier. In court, he filed motions related to his case, but some of them were tossed out due to them being nothing more than gibberish. His main defense was that the county and the harbor master were in cahoots working against him. Ultimately, Wesson was convicted in 1990 and given five years probation and ordered to serve 180 days in jail, as well as given numerous fines. He was also told to get a job, sell his boat, and pay all his debts owed to the harbor. Wesson appealed his conviction, but that was denied in 1992. Following that, he was subsequently taken into custody again for failing to comply with the terms of his probation. Remember, getting a job, sell the boat, pay your bills. He told the court that he was old, unemployed, homeless, unskilled, and had no work history to speak of. Wesson had this thing about collecting an assortment of vehicles and vessels, most of which were dilapidated and decaying. He had at least two boats docked in Marin County. He had a tugboat, which he wanted to use to sail around the world with his family. He had that army tent, which was on a piece of property owned by a man named Alex Wheeler. Wesson entered into a rent-to-own deal with Alex for a quarter acre of land, 
which Alex had inherited from his dad when he passed away. On that property, Wesson had that tent, a motorhome, a trailer, several appliances and pieces of scrap metal, including remnants of stoves, pipes, sinks, and various metal bins that were scattered about. They did not have any running water on the property, but Wesson had manufactured a makeshift bathroom attached to the motorhome. Eventually, Alex came to feel that the property was looking too much like a junkyard and requested that Wesson start removing some of the things that littered the area, but Wesson just kind of sort of dodged the subject. Whether Wesson was really ever able to clear up all his legal issues stemming from the perjury and welfare fraud convictions is unclear. But following all that is when his family would wind up in Fresno. Elizabeth's sister would also come to stay with the Wesson family around this time as well, though Elizabeth would go on to deny that the family lived at that house, which was a ramshackle duplex towards the southern end of Fresno. And Wesson's sexual abuse of six young girls that were either daughters or nieces of his continued when they moved into this house. It was his intentions to continue having children with his children and his nieces. And it has been reported that Wesson added to his religious lessons the troubling message of murder and suicide. He would continually ask his family, When the devil comes to the door, are you going to be ready? What he meant was, were they ready to end their lives and the lives of each other if necessary, if and when the government showed up to try and take the children away and divide up their family. Marcus Wesson knew damn well that there would come a time when what was going on within the confines of his household would come to light, and law enforcement, who Wesson referred to as Satan and the devil, would show up to wage war with Christ, which was how Wesson referred to himself. And not all of those who were subjected to Wesson's way of keeping a home described it as the best time of their lives, like we had said earlier. It was quite the opposite. They described the sexual abuse, the incest, the physical punishment that involved whippings with cords and switches. Several of them who were pulled out of school never learned how to read or write. A number of Elizabeth's sister's daughters, her nieces, were brought to live with the Wessons when they were young, and within a few years, they too were all subjected to a sustained pattern of sexual abuse. Each of them were married to Wesson in his own type of private marriage ceremony, and he talked all of them into having children with him. But it seemed as though Wesson asked permission from each of these girls when he wanted to touch them or have sex with them. In later interviews, the young women would not speak about the incest, but they would say that the women in the home were content. Whatever they did or didn't do was all agreed upon between them and Wesson, and everything was always by choice. One of his daughters would even go so far as to have described their family as democratic. There was never an instance when anyone was raped. Nothing was forced ever. But when the young daughters and nieces of Wesson's began becoming pregnant themselves by the mid-90s, how was all of this explained to outsiders? 
they underwent artificial insemination. But then, several of the young women who had given birth to a number of Wesson's children were unwilling to remain in the household. Depending on who you ask, they either ran away or they were asked to leave. But when they did so, they left their children behind. But whether or not that was a willing choice also depends on who you ask. Some say the mothers willingly left them. Others say Wesson insisted they stay with him until they were seven or eight in order to give him the time to mold them. Then they can go on with their moms. Whatever the case, the moms left. But they wouldn't leave their children behind forever. By 2000, Wesson's children he had with wife Elizabeth were either teenagers or young adults and started getting jobs, as I mentioned earlier. The girls got jobs at McDonald's, got some job experience, and eventually went on to find better jobs waitressing at the Fresno Radisson Hotel. And all the money was turned over to Wesson, but the girls said that he was their financial advisor with an ability to make money stretch. They said they knew what it was all about. They weren't naive about money. All they had to do was look at their peers and co-workers. Nobody they knew that was their age had anything. No assets, no cars, no homes, nothing to their names. But because they turned all their money over to Wesson, that's how they were able to get everything that they had. Their boats, their vehicles, land, they had it all. Wesson, they say, even helped them land their jobs. If it wasn't for him, they'd have nothing. Everything good that came to them was because of Marcus Wesson. And in 2000, four of the girls, two of Wesson's daughters, Kiani and Sabrina, and two of his nieces, Sophina and Ruby, together they purchased a 1935 Tudor-style home in Fresno. The seller, Frank Muna, said he found a note left on the home, which had been pretty badly damaged in a 1999 fire, and the note had an offer to buy it. That offer was from Marcus Wesson. Frank met with the four women along with Wesson, who first told him that they weren't related, but later told him that he was the uncle of two of them. Later on, Frank described seeing some unusual closeness between Wesson and two of the women, though he could not say specifically which two. He observed one of them resting her hand inside Wesson's back pocket, and on another occasion, he observed Wesson and one of the women kiss on the lips. He also noticed on one occasion something kind of odd, that coffins were kept on the property. He saw that one of them was used to store linens and the other was fashioned into a crib. Apparently, Wesson came across a coffin blowout sale and purchased about 10 of them for about $400 each with the intentions of making them into furniture. Though they purchased the home, Wesson was not listed on the title but he was the one who spearheaded the effort to prevent the city of Fresno from demolishing the home and dealt with the contractors in order to get all of the necessary repairs completed. And as you can imagine, 
The home has a very extensive case and a very thick file at the Fresno City Hall's Code Enforcement Department. Progress was not being made at restoring the home as promised, and it seems as though someone was residing in the shed in the backyard. Kiani and Sabrina were the ones who dealt with code enforcement, and they said that Wesson was a handyman doing work on the house. Eventually, the original seller took the four women to civil court for failing to pay him for the property. But while all of this was going on, the Fresno Code Enforcement was continuing to struggle in their dealings with the home that the Wessons had purchased and their owners. They were refused entry when inspections were scheduled with excuses like they were out of the area, they were at work, or they were just unavailable to be present at the time of the inspections. They noted a number of vehicles being illegally stored on the property, including a school bus and an unattached trailer. By the summer of 2003, the city began issuing the Wessons citations. But within a few weeks, the Wessons decided to throw in the towel amidst the issues with Frank, the seller, and the city. But the Wessons did not go very far. Two months later, Rosa Solorio, one of the nieces, purchased a home in nearby Roding Park, and Wesson purportedly moved the entire family into that home. However, they were still frequently seen at a boat that they had anchored in Marin County. At this time, the family was quite large, and many of them were adults, and they were quite loud and disruptive. As the result of several noise complaints from neighbors, the Wessons were ordered off the boat. There were just too many people, and they were not permitted to live there. But at the new house, the family continued to have problems with code enforcement. Apparently, the property that they purchased was not zoned for residential use, but rather commercial use. Also, the school bus, which had been converted into something apparently for living, was also not allowed to be parked in the area. Wesson was given a citation with a very specific order. Obtain a special permit to remain living inside the domicile or get out. They had a hard deadline. March 12, 2004. Marcus Wesson's world was caving in. He was being contacted by law enforcement and code enforcement at every turn. And rightfully so. He had a large household. He had lots of junk. And his presence was simply an assault on everybody's senses. Nobody really wants a neighbor that pollutes the neighborhood with a yard full of junk, dilapidated vehicles parked everywhere, and not to mention an unusually large and apparently loud family. And now, even at their new home, they are continuing to be contacted by Fresno City officials. But this time, they have this deadline to leave the house. What did all of this mean to Wesson? At least... What did it mean in terms of what he had been telling his children all of these years? That the devil, the people with the badges, they were coming. And if they were ever to come to break up the family, it is believed that a part of Wesson's teachings from his own writings was a suicide pact. When the devil appears, 
meaning authorities, when they ever come to try and break up their family, then they were ordered to kill themselves and or each other, oldest to youngest. And it was apparent that the devil was coming to do exactly that on March 12th, that deadline. Two of Wesson's nieces, Sofina Solario and Ruby Sanchez, with whom he fathered children, they came to the home that day, on March 12th. At some point, they decided to leave Wesson's home. And when they did, either on their own volition or whether they were told to leave, they had left their children behind. I am uncertain of what exactly brought them there on that day. If they got word that the family was being forced out of the house and off the property, or how it was that they ever found out. But I don't think it was a coincidence that they showed up to reclaim their children on that specific day that Wesson was given to vacate the premises. But what is known is that nobody, not the family nor have officials, nobody has linked the deadline to what was to transpire that very afternoon when Sophina and Ruby came by wanting their children back. Now they did still consider themselves to be part of the Wesson family. They were left there by their mother, Elizabeth's sister, to be raised by Wesson. But once they reached an age when they realized how wrong the situation they were living in was, they left, but were powerless to take their children with them. But on that day, they were ready to bring their kids out of that situation and take them home. When they knocked on the door, Wesson answered. They demanded their children be returned to them. He flat out refused. Sophina and Ruby told him, if he does not turn their children over, they are going to call the police. He refused again and slammed the door on their faces. As they stood on the front porch contemplating their next move, they began to hear some sort of commotion going on behind the locked door inside the home. Whatever that commotion was, it did not sound good. Standing outside, Sophina and Ruby, filled with fear, began pounding on the door, yelling for their children. Now remember, this is a relatively quiet neighborhood at 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. Two women are screaming, give me my children back is going to draw attention of neighbors who are probably already at their wit's end with the Wesson family. They began emerging from their homes to see what all the ruckus was about. A small crowd began to conglomerate in front of the Wesson home. Then his nieces dialed 911. When officers arrived at the scene, a substantial crowd had gathered outside the house and the girls, in a panic, tried to explain what was going on to police. But officers right away got the sense that the situation was tense, as Ruby and Sophina told them what Wesson was capable of if he feels threatened or cornered by the police or the system, which is exactly what had been going on. And that hard deadline, it was upon him that day. The Wesson children had the warning pounded into their heads for years and years. If anyone comes to break up their family, the children must abide by God's order to end each of their lives. 
Detectives knocked at the door. They figured that this was at worst a domestic custody issue. So when Wesson appeared, standing in the doorway, he told Sophina and Ruby that he would not be handing the children over under these kidnapping-type conditions. He then indicated to the officers that he would comply, let him go get the kids. He shut the door and disappeared back into the home. It may not be surprising to know that Wesson had no intentions of compliance. Inside, he had flown into a frenzy and began telling his children that the end of days was now. The devil was on his way to break their family up and it was time to carry out their plan as ordered by the Lord, a.k.a. himself. He gathered them into a bedroom and ordered the suicide pact to be carried out. Outside on the porch, officers waited with the two frantic moms and a gathering of curious neighbors. They suddenly heard gunshots coming from inside the house. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Nine gunshots in total. The sound of which caused a chaotic scene outside as they had no idea what was going inside the home. Is he shooting at them? Is he shooting the children? How many of them are in there? Are they alive? Are they hostages? What is it that we're dealing with here? When the shooting was over, an ominous silence enveloped the scene. Then, as officers were staged outside, the front door slowly opened, and they watched as Wesson emerged from the home. As they looked on, they were trying to figure out exactly what they were looking at here. At this point, Marcus Wesson was a pretty large man. He had a head of very full and thick, graying dreadlocks, and he was covered in blood. But Wesson continued to exude an air of confidence as he is being confronted by law enforcement, guns all trained on him. He was ordered to the ground, handcuffs were placed on him, and he was taken into custody. Next, it was time to see what was going on inside that home. Nothing could have prepared even the most seasoned officers for what they were about to walk into. Each of those nine bullets was used to kill nine of Weston's children. 25-year-old Sabrina April, 17-year-old Elizabeth Briani, 8-year-old Illabella Carey, 7-year-old Aviv Dominique, 7-year-old Jonathan St. Charles, 4-year-old Ethan St. Laurent, 1-and-a-half-year-old Sedona Vadra, one-and-a-half-year-old Marshy St. Christopher, and one-year-old Java St. Vlanderspree. Each of them was shot once through the eye. All of them died 
instantaneously. Jonathan was Sophina's son. Aviv was Ruby's. The rest of the family were out with Elizabeth, running errands when the killings took place. Officers, upon discovering all of the dead children and Sabrina, who was the only adult, had seen their bodies been set in a very disturbing arrangement. They were all stacked, tangled up with one another, one on top of each other, with Sabrina at the very top, the gun underneath her. Every Fresno police officer that walked in on that scene broke down into tears. And with that, Fresno County would be faced with its worst mass murder ever. But as Marcus Wesson was booked into the county jail in 14 counts of sexual assault and 9 counts of murder, he would say that he is innocent and he is looking forward to going to trial quickly to prove it. You see, Wesson insisted it was not he who pulled the trigger. It was Sabrina. She was the one who took the 22 caliber gun and shot each one of the children through the eye and then turned the gun on herself. And it was eventually determined when she was autopsied that her death was indeed a suicide. And as the word spread across the city of Fresno that the large man with the dreadlocks killed nine of his own children, the community became even more fascinated and astonished when the surviving children came to the defense of their dad. They insisted that nothing happened within their home was done by force. Nothing was against their will. And as the children spoke of their experience with their father slash grandfather, because remember, Wesson fathered children with his own daughters, thereby fathering his own grandchildren. To them, all of this was normal. This is the way that they were raised. This is how God intended things to be. That's how manipulative and calculating and sick Marcus Wesson was. He had every single one of his surviving children believing that their familial situation was the norm. And to make everything within the surviving families even worse, specifically the Wesson family and the Solorio family, which is Elizabeth's side, is that they become deeply divided amongst themselves. Those who side with Wesson, they point the finger of blame squarely at Sophina and Ruby for showing up at that home on that March day, provoking him, inciting him, leading to what ultimately occurred and all of them resoundingly deny that there was ever any kind of murder-suicide pact between them. And of all of this, what would Marcus Wesson, the prophet himself, have to say about it? Nothing. Not a word. He has never said one single thing to explain what occurred in that bedroom that day. How is it that of the 10 people inside the home, 
that Marcus Wesson would be the only one to emerge alive and completely unharmed. He was covered in blood, but he had not one injury on his body. He was calm, totally cooperated with police, never a crack in his veneer. And for those who knew him, they would say that sounds like the Marcus Wesson they knew. Childhood friends came out of the woodwork in the wake of these mass killings. This was not a thing anyone could imagine Wesson being capable of. He wasn't this kind of guy. Though acknowledging that people do change and can possibly snap, those who knew him would say they'd give him the benefit of the doubt. They simply don't believe him to have been the one to have carried out these murders. And in answering to the charges, Wesson's attorney would say, Sabrina is the one responsible for killing all of the children. But it didn't matter what Marcus Wesson's friends and acquaintances or his defense attorney thought of him. It only mattered what the jury thought. They were told of the years and years of sexual abuse and incest that went on under the guise of being the religious teachings of God and that if and when the devil tried to break up their family, the only answer was mass suicide. The prosecutor told the jury it was at the direction and the behest of Marcus Wesson that his nine children were exterminated and afterwards, he threw his babies into a pile, one on top of the other, like they were garbage. In the end, the jury decided that even if he didn't pull the trigger himself, it was he who brainwashed them all to abide by his murder-suicide pact. And this brainwashing occurred through the years of sexual and physical abuse. He twisted religion to suit his own perverse desires while he constantly blustered about the apocalypse, eventually evolving his family into a cult designed to satisfy Wesson's sexual and financial needs. The jury heard how he moved them around from one rundown living situation to another, from boats to buses to tents in order to stay one step ahead of detection, because he knew what he was doing was very wrong and very illegal. Wesson taught his young girls in what he called loving, which consisted of fondling at first, and as they grew older, the abuse progressed to oral copulation and eventually sexual intercourse. And as for Wesson's defense, well, it fell short. The jury convicted Marcus Wesson of nine counts of first-degree murder and 14 counts of sexual assault and he was sentenced to death. Today, Marcus Wesson is 72 years old and is currently sitting on California's death row at San Quentin State Prison. Elizabeth and her remaining children, though at first stood in staunch support of Wesson, no longer have any contact with their dad, having come to better understand the kind of man Marcus Wesson really is. There is not a whole lot out there that I could find online as to the surviving children today. In 2009, there was an article that caught up with some of the Wesson children, along with a couple of his boys, 
who had a very different experience from the girls as they were kept completely in the dark as to the sexual abuse their father had been subjecting their sisters to. They were publicly speaking out for the first time as a book about their story written by Fresno reporter Alicia Sofios entitled Where Hope Begins was set to be released. Alicia also took Elizabeth and her surviving children into her home in the wake of the mass murders. In their interviews, along with the story told in Alicia's book, the family described in painful detail the terrifying experience of growing up under the rule of Marcus Wesson. He maintained absolute control over every single aspect of their lives, including what they were allowed to eat, when they were able to speak, and who they were allowed to speak to. The boys were forbidden from talking to the girls, and the girls were forbidden from talking to their mother. Wesson constantly told them that the only place that they were safe was inside the home with him. Yet, at the drop of a hat, he would severely beat them as a result of the smallest infractions with tree branches or coaxial cables. And if they cried, the beating would continue until they were silent. And I did say that initially in the wake of the mass killings, wife Elizabeth and children continued to openly support Wesson. But over time, working through their trauma and grief, they became aware of the horror that their lives actually were. They eventually got to a point when, never speaking of Wesson, they were doing so as if they were talking about a distant stranger, a person that they don't even know or are related to in any way. Adrian Wesson, who was 34 years old in 2009, said that all he knew was his dad was God and he was deathly afraid of him. So much so, he couldn't speak. He frequently defecated in his pants, and the beatings would leave him unable to walk for as long as a week. Elizabeth has said when Wesson began having children with their daughters, she made a futile attempt at standing up to him. He responded by choking her until she passed out. Elizabeth was the last person to see their nine children and grandchildren that day back in 2004 when Weston ordered the suicide pact to be carried out. As I said earlier, she happened to be out with her other kids running an errand. When the police were waiting on the porch for Weston to come out with Sophina and Ruby's kids, Elizabeth had arrived home to find the chaotic scene, which police were still considering to be a simple domestic call. So Elizabeth was allowed to enter the home. It was quiet inside. She made her way towards the back bedroom where Wesson was with all the kids. Nervously shaking, she opened the door. The room was dark, except for whatever little sunlight had been seeping in. She saw Wesson kneeling on the ground with his arm around their 17-year-old daughter, also named Elizabeth, but they called her Lise. She could see Lise looking at her, and then Wesson called her name and told her to come here. She glanced at Lise again, and the expression on her daughter's face has been burned permanently into her memory. It was a look of defeat, a look that conveyed an understanding that 
it was too late. But Elizabeth did not obey Wesson's demand that she come here. She ran from the room. Later on, she would say she didn't know why or how she chose to run, but she did. And she would say that the regret of that decision she carries with her for the rest of her days. She sees it as a failure on her part to protect her children. Though I don't think that there is anything that she could have done to change what happened. She could not have talked Wesson down. If anything, she would have likely died as well. She was able to keep moving forward despite the unthinkable loss of so many of her children and grandchildren for the sake of those who made it out with her alive. I also found an article from 2011 that caught up with Gypsy Wilson as she was preparing to graduate from Fresno Pacific University, earning a bachelor's in business. She ended up running away from the Wesson home prior to the massacre when she was 19, having said, I really didn't know anybody, so when I walked out, I didn't know where to go. I just couldn't take it anymore. I knew that there were better things out there. She went to stay with relatives and for a time with an older brother, and they helped guide her into a new, independent life. She got a job at a local hotel and enrolled in Clovis Adult School, where she excelled. Through the years, she managed to learn from books that Wesson had in their house. Family members taught her basic math as well. And she managed to keep the dark family secrets buried until the massacre, which occurred only six months after Gypsy defected. Despite the horror of what happened... Gypsy was able to stay focused on her studies. She earned her diploma after a year and a half in adult school, finishing with a strong 3.9 grade point average. Around the same time, Gypsy gave birth to a child of her own that she had with her then boyfriend, so she was pretty busy. From there, she attended community college at Willow International Center, eventually being accepted into Fresno Pacific. While working as a leasing agent for an apartment management company, Gypsy earned her business degree. Her mom, Elizabeth, along with four of her brothers and sisters, attended commencement ceremonies. But she has changed her name, so the story was written identifying her by her birth name, Gypsy. And having reached that point, being the first in her family to earn a college degree, which was not an easy place to reach, considering the first time she ever saw the inside of a classroom was when she enrolled at adult school when she was almost 20 years old. From there, Gypsy floated the possibility of going on to earn her master's, but she had not ruled out taking a break from school either. And perhaps taking the time to confront some of the issues she still carried with her as a result of her childhood. When Elizabeth turned 50, she finally began divorce proceedings, and she wanted to do everything in her power to ensure her surviving children would not live their lives defined by their father's actions, to not be judged for what their father did, and to not be known as the children of that baby killer. 
and the only way for them to grow and succeed was to continue moving further and further and further away from Marcus Wesson. And that brings us to the end of episode 94, The Tale of the Monster Fresno. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any of the other cases that we have covered on California Dreaming, please feel free to request and join our discussion group on Facebook. There we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of our cases that we cover, as well as current true crime stories, other news events, TV shows that we enjoy, and documentaries that we've watched, books that we've read. Whatever you find that you would like to share, please come and join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. Also, California Dreaming is approaching its second anniversary, and I would really like it if you would call and leave a voicemail for the show to be played on the anniversary special. Leave us a message to be played. Tell us how you found California Dreaming, how long you've been listening, what your favorite episode is, just whatever you want. The phone number is 530-346-4084. And I know a lot of you have this hang up about hearing your own voice or stumbling over your words when you're recording. Don't worry about it. You can call as many times as you want to get it right. I won't play your bloopers, okay? I'll always play the very last message that you leave. You're not the only one that has called the voicemail multiple times, so don't worry about it. I know it's not easy. But I really, really, really would love to hear from all of you. Again, the phone number is 530-346-4084. And if you are international calling, I've been told that you can pick a Google telephone number that's an American phone number and call from there without having any fees or extra toll charges. So please call. I'd really love to hear from as many of you as possible. California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our current roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world, and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. And I'm very proud to be a part of this amazing group. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can find the links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, where you can find all the California Dreaming stuff. Get your t-shirt or your mug or your hoodie. Take a picture and post it in our group or on Instagram for everybody to see. And if you would like to just email us with your feedback or your comments or your questions or to just let us know what you think, that's all at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Thank you so much again for listening to the show. I am your host, Roseanne. I love all of you so very much and I missed you over the last two weeks. And until next time, sweet dreams. Sweet dreams.
I'm Woody Overton, host of Real Life, Real Crime, the podcast. Join me each week to hear true and unscripted stories of the cases I actually worked during my career as a major crime investigator in South Louisiana. Go to realliferealcrime.com where you can listen to each week's episodes and find links to our social media. I appreciate y'all. Don't let me catch you down on the bike.